Romans chapter 14. Start the night there, Romans 14. Romans 14, and let's just read verse 5, and then we'll have a little prayer. It says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Let's just have a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you, Lord, that we can come out midweek to uh, spend some time around your word and uh, around the truths contained therein. And, Lord, spend time in prayer and we pray you bless this time, that, Lord, you'd be in our midst. Lord, pray you give me wisdom now as, uh, Lord, we consider your word and uh, we continue to consider the, the Baptist distinctives, Lord. Just give me wisdom and guidance to speak. It'll be your words, it'll be your thoughts. And, Lord, that you'd be honoured and glorified in it all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's been quite a while since I spoke on a Wednesday night. I was looking today trying to remember where we were up to. It was actually back in July. I don't know why it's been so long, but it was July. It was the last time I spoke on a Wednesday night. So um, we were considering the Baptist distinctives. And so we're going to get back to that tonight. We've looked, first of all, at B, biblical authority. Okay, so that was the idea that we believe that the Word of God is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. It's where we go to for the answers. We saw A, autonomy of the local church, okay? The idea that every church is self-governing. And so the local church here doesn't tell Coffs or Lismore what to do and vice versa. We are self-governing. Then we came to P, priesthood of all believers, which is the wonderful truth that we don't need to come through a man to come to God. We don't need a priest to intervene for us because we have Christ, our great high priest, and we are all now priest of God. And then we looked at T, two ordinances only. We saw that we believe that there are two ordinances of God for the church, baptism of believers only by immersion and the Lord's table. So that means we're up to I, okay? Baptists, we're looking at B, A, P, T, we're up to I, individual, soul, liberty. Essentially what this is, is this is the freedom of religion, okay? It's religious freedom or religious liberty. Now, this is the belief that every individual, whether that person is saved or unsaved, has the liberty to choose what his conscience or his soul decides is best. When it comes to religion, each man has the freedom to choose what they believe. You know, no one is to be forced by an external means of any kind to believe something. No one is to be forced to change their faith or their belief, um, you know, by being put in prison, tortured, you know, being threatened with death, all these things, we're not to threaten someone so that they change their belief, okay? We cannot force someone to change what they believe. You know, the fact of the matter is we may not always agree with the decision that someone makes, you know, with their, their belief, with their point of view, their position, you know, they may be clearly wrong from God's word, but that still doesn't give us the right to force them to believe, to force them to change and think differently. 
The reality is they need to have a change of heart before they're going to think differently. Okay, And that's what the Word of God is to do, and that's what the Spirit does, works in their heart, first of all. You know, sadly, throughout the ages, there has been times where religious freedom has been denied. You know, we only have to think back to, you know, the Roman Catholic and the Inquisitions in the Middle Ages. There was no freedom of religion. Now, you look at that time and the Catholics made everyone believe what they wanted. And if you disagreed, then you were thrown in prison. You were threatened with death and eventually executed if you didn't renounce your faith. And so there was no freedom of religion. That's the other extreme, isn't it? Okay, there is no individual soul liberty. It's you do as you're told or be persecuted. The same thing was true during the, the Soviet Union under the communists. The same thing behind the Iron Curtain. You know, Christians were forced to believe what the state told them. And if you did otherwise, then again, you're persecuted. No freedom of religion. And indeed, it's still happening around the world today. You know, there are countries today where there is no religious freedom. You know, we can praise God that we have religious freedom in this country, at least for now. We have freedom of religion, okay? And we can praise God for that. Because as Baptist, it is our conviction that a person should not, should not be forced against their will to believe something that they don't believe in, okay? You can't force someone, right or wrong, you can't force someone to believe in it. Now, why is it wrong to force someone to believe in something? Well, it's wrong because you cannot change a person's heart by forcing them to believe in something, can you? You can't change their heart or their mind even by physically forcing them. The change must happen in the heart first of all, and that then changes their thinking, that then changes their actions. And so the heart is where the change needs to happen, which can't happen by forcing them. You know, this is a biblical principle that, you know, cannot be denied. That's where the work needs to take place, in the heart. And so let's just consider the biblical indications of this um, position, individual soul liberty. First of all, the principle stated, we see it in Romans 14, which we read at the start. Let's just read from verse 5 down to verse 12. It says, One man esteemeth the day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, for no man dieth to himself. Sorry, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Romans 14 here is really the key passage concerning individual soul liberty. In verse 5 here, we have described this situation where one person, one believer, okay, sets aside a day as a special religious day, while another person does not have any such days. They don't recognize any days as being 
holy days. Okay, there's one person who has a holy day. This other one doesn't have any holy days. And, you know, this is a clear um, matter of religion, isn't it? Okay, you've got these two people disagreeing on a point of religion. Okay, but notice how Paul handled it. You know, he doesn't say that, you know, one or the other one was to be put in prison because of their difference in belief, does he? He doesn't say, take this one, throw them into prison because they don't agree with the other one. He doesn't say that they should be forced to change their position. Now, rather, he states that each man is to be fully persuaded in his own mind. That's the end of verse 5. It says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Fully persuaded in their own mind or convinced in their own mind about the matter. In other words, each man has to come to their own decision. Each man has to come to their own point of view about that particular thing. You see, this is individual soul liberty. It's allowing each individual to have the liberty to choose what they believe. And this is what we believe as a church. This is what we hold to, that each individual has the liberty to choose what they believe. Now, the reason for this is found in verse 12. It says, So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. You see, every person ultimately is accountable to who? God. We're not accountable to each other. We're not accountable to man. Each of us are accountable to God for our actions. We're not accountable to any man here on earth. And so therefore, since a person is not accountable to any other man, no one can force their opinion upon someone else. You can't force someone to live as you do. Okay, just because I have a difference of opinion about something than you do, does not mean I can go and force my beliefs upon you. You may be wrong, and I might be able to show you from God's word that you're wrong, but I still can't force it upon you. Because ultimately you're accountable for your actions to who? God. And the same is true for me. You can't force your beliefs upon me. I'm accountable to God for my actions, my decisions as well. Now this truth is stated over in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. As well, just turn to 2 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Here in Corinthians, he stated the fact that every single one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to give an account of what we have done in this life. We're going to give an account to him. Okay, not to every other man. We're not going to stand and give an account to man of what we've done. We give an account to God of what we've done. So the only one we are accountable to is the Lord. And so therefore, since no man is accountable to me, I have no right to use any physical means to force someone else to believe what I believe or to force upon them my opinion, my beliefs about something. This is individual soul liberty. And it's clearly taught here in Romans 14. Let's look secondly now at some examples of individual soul liberty from the Word of God. First of all, there are examples in the Bible where God or a believer does not force an unbeliever to believe in the Lord. Let's just go to Luke 13, first of all, if you would. 
Luke 13 and verse 34. It says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets, and stoneth them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and I verily say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You know, here we have the Lord, okay, outside Jerusalem, and he's weeping over Jerusalem because of the state of Jerusalem, okay? Why? Because they didn't receive him. The Jews rejected Christ. They rejected him as their Messiah, and he's weeping over Jerusalem. Now, you have Christ here, the creator of the universe, God manifest in the flesh, and he's weeping over Jerusalem because of their unbelief. You see, the point is, he's God. He could have forced the people to believe, couldn't he? He could have called angels from heaven, an army of angels, to force them to their knees and accept him, believe in him. But he didn't. Now, Christ offered them life, and they refused him. But he didn't force them to believe when they refused, did he? Instead, he wept. He wept over their decision, but it was their decision. They exercised individual soul liberty to not believe, but Christ would not force them to believe. We have another example in John chapter 4. Just turn over there, John 4. We won't read the whole chapter, but in John 4, we have the story, of course, of Christ meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. And he offers to her eternal life. Just read from verse 13 with me. It says, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now here you have Christ and he offers life to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. You know, notice again here, Christ does not force her to believe. He doesn't force her to accept him. He simply offers her life and she accepts it. Okay, she has the other reaction, doesn't she? Okay, the Jews in Jerusalem rejected Christ. Unbelievers rejecting him. That's their choice. Now you've got an unbeliever accepting Christ. Her choice. On both occasions, these unbelievers were not coerced or forced into a decision, were they? It's a freedom of choice, exercising free will, individual soul, liberty. And so it applies, first of all, to unbelievers, but also we find examples in the Word of God where God or a believer does not force a believer to hold to a certain position, to make the right decision. Now, in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we have God, of course, with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden, okay, and God gives them the one rule, doesn't he? They're not to eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, God does not station an angel at the tree or put a fence around the tree to stop them. You know, when Adam and Eve have picked the fruit and they're about to eat it, God does not knock it out of their hand and stop them. God allowed them to make a choice, didn't he? God allowed them to exercise free will. The point is God never forced them to a certain position. He desired their obedience. That, that's what God wanted. He wanted them to obey him. 
and he had the power to enforce it, but he didn't because God wanted him to exercise free will. And so we have an example of God doing this with Adam and Eve. There's another example found in Acts chapter 15 with Paul and Barnabas. Just turn there, Acts 15. Verse 36 of Acts 15. It says, And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them uh, from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. So here we have another passage confirming this truth. Here you have two wonderful believers, Paul and Barnabas, two Christians, two who love the Lord. They've served the Lord together. And yet here they have a difference of opinion, don't they? They have a difference of opinion about John Mark, whether he is useful for the ministry, about how they should react to him. Paul wants to just let him go, basically. Barnabas wants to show him love and restore him. There's a difference of opinion. Now, each did not agree with the position of the other. Each thought the other one was wrong. That's why they come to such a sharp contention here. But you notice that neither forces the other to believe. You know, Paul does not grab... Barnabas and beat him and forced him to accept his position or vice versa. Rather, what we find is that they depart ways, don't they? You know, they disagreed on the position and they departed and they went in their separate ways and they kept serving the Lord in their own ways. There's a difference of opinion, but there is no forcing of their opinion upon each other. The last one I want us to turn to is Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. And verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now here we have the Lord stand pitching, uh, standing at the door, knocking. The door of the church of the later sins. Now why is the Lord standing at the door and knocking? Because he's been excluded. You know, he's been excluded from the brethren, excluded from their worship. You know, Christ is seen here desiring to enter in, but notice, notice how he is pictured in the verse. He's standing at the door and he is knocking. You know, Christ is not standing at the door with a battering ram, is he? He's not about to bash the door down and force them to accept him, force them to include him. He's standing at the door and he is knocking. You see, he's showing once again that God is not going to force his will upon them. Okay? They have the right to exercise individual soul liberty, even if their position's wrong. Now we must understand that in all of these examples, this freedom of choice does not deny the sovereignty of God. Okay, we need to make that clear. We don't, we're not denying the sovereignty of God here, because God is in control of everything. But from a human perspective, God never forces a person to an action against his or her will. 
God never forces us to do something. Okay, we have a free will. We have the right to exercise that free will. And all of these texts that we've sort of briefly gone through show clearly that the Bible teaches individual soul liberty. But there are two limitations, well, at least two limitations to this truth that I want to quickly cover. The first is you know, that soul liberty does not mean that as believers we have the right to do whatever we want without caring about the consequences, you know, if we hurt someone else. Now that I can act and behave however I want, exercise my soul liberty, and it doesn't matter how much it hurts you. Okay, that's wrong. That's not, that's not justified by this idea of soul liberty. Now if we went back to Romans 14, the passage we began in, that passage is all about how we shouldn't cause a brother to stumble. You know, how we shouldn't seek to cause someone else to stumble by exercising our soul liberty. You see, soul liberty should not lead us to want to do whatever we want, no matter how much we hurt someone else. Rather, it should cause us to restrain ourselves and seek not to offend others by our actions. You know, if we do something that offends someone else, well, then we should cease doing it around them. We shouldn't seek to offend them. We shouldn't seek to cause them to stumble. Yes, we have individual soul liberty. We have the right to have a difference of opinion to them on that position. But it doesn't mean we need to flaunt it and cause offense. Rather, if we love them, when we should restrain ourselves and act in love, shouldn't we, towards that brother. And secondly, soul liberty is not a justification for disobeying the word of God. Soul liberty is not a justification for disobeying the word of God. You know, for instance, a believer has the liberty, if he wants to choose to be baptized or choose not to. A believer has the liberty to choose to join a church or not to. But they cannot justify their refusal to do so on the basis that they have soul liberty. Because God's word's clear that baptism is the first command, isn't it? God's word's clear that also after we get baptized, we should join ourselves to a body of believers. Yes, we have individual soul liberty and we can choose not to, but in doing so, we've disobeyed God, haven't we? And we're accountable to God. We can't use our soul liberty as justification of our sin, okay? of justification of something that goes against God's word. And that was just two examples. I mean, there's plenty of areas. I'm just giving two examples Okay, of, of things that we can you know, try to justify by our soul liberty. And so we can't use it to justify disobeying the Word of God. And lastly, now quickly this evening, just quickly some areas of individual soul liberty. So how does this apply then in our treatment of others? You know, how does this apply in regards to believers and unbelievers? Well, to an unbeliever, it means that we grant them the choice of believing that God exists. We grant them the choice of believing that the Bible is true. We grant them the choice of accepting Christ or rejecting Christ. And if they reject God, if they reject the Bible, if they reject Christ, then we know they are wrong. We know that they are wrong and they've sinned and they're on their way to hell. And we will do all we can to help them to see the right, help them to see the truth but we will not force them. 
We will not force them to believe. And in regards to a fellow believer, it means that we grant them the choice of whether to, to attend church. We grant them the choice of whether to attend this church or another church. We grant them a choice of which view on tribulation to hold. You know, whether they give of their income to the Lord, how much they give, whether they will serve the Lord, whether they will have personal and family devotions. I mean, the list goes on. These are all personal decisions between each of us and God, aren't they? Now, God's word's clear in all those things. But again, if someone has a difference of opinion on it to us, that's between them and the Lord. We can't force them. You know, a, a brother or sister in Christ who loves the Lord is clearly saved, serving the Lord, but they attend a church that we don't agree with, a church that's liberal, a church that, you know, drinks or whatever else might, might be, has rock music and everything else. If they love the Lord and they're saved, we have no right to force our beliefs upon them, do we? You know, we don't agree with their position, that's fine. We don't agree with the choice that the church that they go to, and we can do our best to show them from God's word why we don't agree with it. But we can't force our position upon them. They have individual soul liberty. See, a brother or sister in Christ may be wrong, and we will do all we can, we can to help them to see the truth, but we cannot force them to believe. We cannot force our beliefs upon them, our position upon them. That's between them and the Lord, isn't it? They're accountable to God for their decisions, just like you and I are accountable to God for our decisions. And so the Bible clearly teaches that we cannot force a person to believe a certain matter in the realm of religion. Now, this doesn't mean that we aren't concerned about them if they fail to believe the truth. We are deeply concerned. But we cannot and we will not force them to believe. You know, we will do all we can to help them. We will pray for them. We will witness to them. We will live a godly testimony before them. But we cannot and will not force them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, let me, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we do indeed have individual soul liberty. Lord, I pray you help us each to understand this truth. Understand, Lord, that we do have uh, this freedom in Christ. But, Lord, help us not to to use it as an excuse for sin, to use it as an excuse to cause offense unto others, Lord. But help us, Lord, knowing this truth, to therefore act in a right manner towards others, to treat others in the right way, whether they are saved or unsaved, Lord. May we respect them um, according to this truth in the way that you would have us to, we pray. I pray this is a blessing to each of us. Help us remember these truths in Jesus' name.